this uh, week, I ran across an article that the headline uh, caught my attention, uh, and it made me want to read more of the article, but the headline, uh, I don't remember the exact headline, but to paraphrase it, it was basically, why I hate Sundays less now than I used to, right? And so this author who wrote this article uh, kind of had this idea that she hated Sundays, dreaded Sundays, and she said, Sunday mornings weren't so bad because even as a child, even as a kid, uh, Sunday morning was filled, you would go to church, and then you'd visit family, and so there were these social interactions that they kind of filled up your morning on Sunday morning, and, and so it kind of took your mind off of what was coming next, and, and so she said that Sunday mornings were okay, but as the day kind of waned on, as things continued, uh, she began to dread Sundays more and more, and she gave a specific time that the dread set in, and for this author, she said at 4.45 on Sunday was the worst time of all. This is when the dread for her started. And she gave this reason. She said, at 4.45 on a working weekday, it is filled with possibilities. 4.45 on a Friday is a keen to winning the lottery. On a Saturday, it is filled with promise and hope and optimism. But 4.45 p.m. on a Sunday was the beginning of the end. The descent into oblivion. You see, 4.45 was the time that all the social interactions had finished, and you find yourself face-to-face with this reality that the weekend is over, that in just a little more than 12 hours, you were going to go back to work, and your, your day was going to be so much different than it was over the past 24 hours, or over the past 48 hours. And so she really started to dread Sunday starting at about 4.45 because it meant the work week was starting. And she gave this quote. She said, The psychology in relation to Sunday fear, which is what she calls her dread of Sunday, the psychology in relation to Sunday fear points towards several contributing factors. She says, One, anxieties of task that Friday you said could be put off till Monday are waiting for you. Mourning the loss of a carefree weekend that you were excited about just 24 hours previously And finally, feeling trapped in a job that you see is not fulfilling routine or mundane. You see, there may be some of you here this morning that are are starting to feel that way. Yeah, you're here and and you're enjoying Sunday morning, whether you're here in person, whether you're here online. You're kind of enjoying Sunday morning. There's something filling your time. There's something filling up your attention. But even right now, just with that video, and even right now, just mentioning a job or work, like that Sunday dread has already started in the back of your mind. You're already dreading tomorrow. You're already dreading that less than 24 hours, you're going to be back in your desk or back on your job site and back wherever it is that that you're doing. And for some of you, that that Sunday fear is already there because within a few hours, you're going to find yourself returning to to a job that maybe you're you're just not that excited about. And in this article, uh, she says that the reason she wrote this article, she's found a way to turn her Sunday fear or Sunday dread to turn it down a little bit. And and to be honest with you, she she's honest. She says, well, I'm self-employed. So I changed the way I look at Mondays. You see, Monday used to be like diving. I'm going to get everything done. I'm going to have this whole list of stuff done before breakfast, before lunch kicks in on Sunday. And she says, now I do my own schedule. And so I don't look at Monday the same way. It's not my jump in. It's my ease into the week kind of day. And she admits that in her article, she says, not everybody has that advantage. Not everybody can make their own schedule. She said, but the key to changing 
your Sunday fears, changing your Sunday dread, is to change the way you look at Mondays. Right? And she says there's some things that you can practically do that you can pick out your clothes on Friday or Saturday. You can get your lunch box ready on Friday or Saturday. Don't pack your lunch on Friday or Saturday. Maybe too early for that. But you can wash it. You can, you can get things ready for Monday that will make Monday morning just a little less stressful. And I think Paul would agree uh, that those aren't bad things. But I think Paul would take it a step further. I think he would fully agree that the way to avoid a Sunday dread or a Monday morning or the way to avoid Sunday fear is to change the way we look at Monday morning, change the way of what comes next for all of us, for the job that we're going for. And I think that he would say that instead of seeing this job or your employment or school or whatever it is that you are doing, instead of seeing it as something you dread and you do it just to get a paycheck, see it as something to be thankful for. See it as an opportunity for worship. See it as an opportunity to continue what we are doing right here in this moment. See it as this opportunity to let you worship and live out what we did here just a moment ago, and we're doing right now in this moment. So this morning, we're going to look at three very short verses in Colossians uh, chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 15 and read through verse 17. And we started last week talking about things to be thankful for that we often take for granted. And we, we talked about our health last week and how major uh, that can be and how we are so often not thankful for that. We just take it for granted until something flips and something changes, and then we realize how grateful we should be for those things. And for some of us, that's we need to camp out there for a while, and we did. And for some of us, we need to move on to this week. And this idea of work, the jobs that we have, the employment that we have. And I understand there are some of you that are not old enough to have jobs, but your school is your job, right? That's what you are required to do. That's, what's your, that's the place in your life. So wherever your place in life, for some of you, you don't go to a job. You, your job is your family and your kids. And so whatever it is... See this as an opportunity for what it is that God has given you, right? So we want to change the outlook on tomorrow. We want to do that by seeing it differently today. So I want you to open your Bibles, Colossians chapter 3. You can read along with me, starting in verse 15. And verse 15 says, And let the peace of the Messiah, to which you were also called in one body, control your hearts. Be thankful. Let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for who You are. God, we thank you that we have so much to be thankful for. God, and the best that we can do is to bring you our praise. To raise our hands and to sing hallelujah to you. Because God, we don't even deserve that privilege. We don't even deserve to speak your name, to be in your presence, to be in your thought or to be cared and loved for by you, Father. So God, I pray that we remember that we are mindful of your gospel this morning. God, I pray that we listen to your words, God, that we are attentive to what you have for us this morning. And God, for some of us, let us find you in a place of love and compassion and grace and mercy this morning, Father. Knowing that that's what you have poured out for us. And that your desire is to be with us, Father. 
And God, for some of us, we have met you there. And so, God, I pray that we are overflowing with a joy and a grace that can only be explained by the peace that you give us, Father. And God, I pray that we cannot be contained within these walls, God. That the worship that we attend to, the worship that we do, is not just in this moment, in this time, but God, it overflows into everything that we do, whether in word or deed. Father, I pray, God, that in this moment you speak. And I pray that we listen, Father. God, let us be your students at your feet. And I pray, God, that we hear you, not just with our ears, but with our hearts and our souls. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Many of you are familiar with the great uh, evangelist Billy Graham. And a few years before he died, his health really started kind of fading and was waning away. And uh, even in those waning years, he, he did as much as he could for the kingdom of God. And he was asked one time by a reporter... Um, who I have a feeling didn't really know him all that well, um, or his history. And, and the, the reporter kind of asked him this question. He said, kind of in your declining health, do you think this is going to affect your ability uh, to celebrate Thanksgiving or to give thanks to God? And, and Dr. Billy Graham, who is, is such an amazing speaker and such an amazing evangelist, uh, answered this question in a very classic Dr. Graham way. Instead of talking about himself, he said, let me tell you a story. And now some of you remember Billy Graham, some of you kind of, I want you to think, and, and this is what I have to do, because I know I sound nothing like Billy Graham, and so I want you to, if you know Billy Graham, you remember his voice, just close your eyes for just a moment, and just hear his, his deep bass voice as he tells this story. He says, I want to tell you a story about a man who had every right to be bitter, but wasn't. He says, and this is the story he tells, he says, the next footsteps in the corridor he knew might be those of the guard who came to take him away for execution. His only bed was a hard, cold stone floor of, or in the damp, cramped prison cell. Not an hour passed that he was free from the constant irritation of the chains and the pain of the iron that was cutting into his wrists and his legs. He was separated from friends, unjustly accused, brutally treated, if ever a person had a right to complain, it was this man, lavishing, almost forgotten, as he wasted away in a prison cell. But instead of complaining, his lips rang with words of praise and with thanksgiving. Dr. Billy Graham said, if Paul can endure all that he did and be so full of thanks, then I have nothing but thanksgiving and praise on my lips as well. You see, what he points to is the fact that Paul has discovered the reason to be thankful has less to do with our external circumstances and more to do with our, what we possess on the inside. That Paul has all the reasons he needs to be bitter. He has all the reasons to complain. He, he's sitting in a Roman prison and yet he's writing this letter. He he's, he's, has all these reasons. He could have complained about the food. He could have filled these four chapters with complaints. He could have complained about the food. He could have complained about people not come to see him. He could have complained about how the, the prison cell was cramped. He could have complained about a cellmate. He could have complained about the terrible situation. He could have spent these four chapters complaining about all that was wrong in his life. And yet when you read this whole book, these four chapters of the book of Colossians, what you find it is so 
filled with thanksgiving. It's so filled with gratitude. It's four chapters long, but seven different times throughout this book, he mentions giving thanks or being thankful or, or having gratitude. And in fact, it shows up in every single chapter at least once in every chapter. He brings back this idea of gratitude. And we come to chapter 3. And we find this concentrated area. Then in verses 15 through 17, this concentrated idea of being thankful, this concentrated idea of gratitude. In fact, in every one of those verses, he brings up this idea. Right? So seven times he mentions the whole book. Three of them are right here in this small section of Scripture. And every one of them, it's so interesting, he uses a different Greek word in every single chapter, every single verse. So in verse 15, there's a different Greek word. 16, there's a different one. 17, there's a different one. And what he's doing, is he's marrying, he's connecting these ideas that we sometimes don't put with gratitude, we don't put with thanksgiving. He's doing it in such a way that you cannot divorce these things. You cannot separate these things from being thankful. You cannot do these things or live this way without gratitude or without giving thanks. And so he starts in verse 15 kind of this with this idea of being thankful. And so he tells us why we should be thankful. And I want you to look with me in verse 15. He starts, he says, let the peace of Messiah, to which you were also called in one body, control your hearts. Be thankful. You see the Greek word, I told you he uses a different one every single time. The Greek word that he uses there at the end of the verse is Eucharistus. And it's unique because this is the only time that this word is used in the whole New Testament. Nowhere else do you find this word. And what it means is to be grateful. And it means to be thankful. But I love this because every re- he's got a reason he uses every one of these words. They have kind of a, a little bit of different flavor, different aspect of being thankful. And this one means to be thankful, to, to be grateful. But I love this. You go on to it. It means to be mindful of a favor that you have received. To be accepting and to, accept, to be acceptful by others. And so this is the term that Paul is using because he wants us to be mindful of something. He wants us to mentally grasp something. He, he wants to be that we should be understanding, that we should be mindful, that we should be accepting of what it is to be acceptable. And this is what the peace of the Messiah does for us. You see, to be accepted, to be accepting, to be mindful, it brings us back to the peace of the Messiah. What is it that Paul wants you to be thankful for? It's he wants to be on the front of your mind. The peace of of the Messiah. And when he talks about the peace of the Messiah, he's not talking about the absence of war. He's not talking about the absence of conflict. He's not talking about a peace treaty that we see between nations. He's talking about a state of tranquility that lies within each person. Right? And, and I should say not within each person, but within each person who has a connection with their Creator. He's talking about the state of tranquility that's caused by our soul's assurance of our salvation through Christ, that we have peace of Christ, that we are no longer enemies of God, but rather we are friends of God, that, that we're no longer uh, living in fear and judgment of God, that, that we don't see God as this big judge sitting on a throne somewhere ready to shoot lightning bolts at us, that we're, we're not constantly looking over our shoulder to see how God is going to judge us and what God is going to get back at us. And, and we're not constantly living in this fear and anxiety. Instead, we live in this moment of peace. We live in this time in this state of peace with God because instead of seeing Him as this judge ready to judge us and, and, and condemn us for every real action we do, we live instead in this peace of the Messiah. We live in this tranquil state where instead of seeing Him as an enemy, we see Him as a friend. We see Him as the Father that He is. And we have this assurance because of what Christ did, because of the death of Christ on the cross, because it covered all of our sins. We have this assurance because we know the punishment that we deserve 
He took it on himself. The, the assurance is that the, Christ, the work of Christ allows us to boldly come into the presence of God, that we have access to God and we have access to the throne room of grace. And Paul says that we should be thankful for this. We should be mindful of this. This should be on the forefront of our minds, that we should be so thankful that you once were an enemy of God and the Messiah came to make you a friend of God. You once chose to rebel against God and fight against Him. And yet the peace of the Messiah says, you can come back to me. I'm opening this door. I'm giving you access to come back to me. We ought to be thankful. We ought to be mindful of the salvation that we so often take for granted. And we ought to be mindful that it took His death to provide peace for us. And now we can have peace with our Creator. We can have a relationship with this Almighty God. And it's not a relationship of fear. But it's one of peace and assurance. It's one of rest and assurance. Knowing that all that we've done wrong is covered by one act that He did for us. You see, we should rest and we should be thankful. And we should be excited about what He has done for us. And so regardless of what else we have or don't have in life, we have a reason to be thankful. And whether you're sitting in a nice, comfortable chair right now, or you're sitting in the protection of this community or the protection of your home, wherever you're sitting right now, or you're like Paul, sitting in the middle of a prison cell, not knowing if the next steps were coming to get you to take for your execution, regardless of that, the reason to be thankful is not tied to the things of this world or what this world has to offer. The reason for our thanksgiving goes beyond this world. It's what came into this world to give us Peace. It is this supernatural idea that, that doesn't falter and it doesn't fade away. It's this peace that's unaffected by time and condition. It's this eternal peace that will outlast everything else that this world has to offer. And so when everything else fades away, when you have nothing left, when, when you're sitting in a prison cell chained to a guard and wondering when your time is up, you've got a reason to be thankful. Because your thanksgiving is not tied to this earth. It is tied to the one who gave you life everlasting. I want you to see another reason that Paul says we could be thankful in this verse. Paul says not only should we be thankful for the peace of the Messiah that's made available, but he says that you should let this control your heart. A different translation says let the peace of the Messiah rule in your heart. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not a huge baseball fan. I don't watch baseball okay I used to I used to play baseball when I was a kid I used to watch major league baseball and I'll tell you a quick story why I don't do it anymore because I had an uncle that lived in New York and he did a great thing for me when I was a kid he got me tickets to see the Yankees and the Blue Jays play Right? Now, some of you are excited about that, and some of you are like, I don't even know who those are, but that's okay. Right? And so he got us these tickets, me and my brother and my grandmother, and, and we went up to New York, and we got, to see, we got to sit in Yankee Stadium, and we got to, it was just, it's a cool atmosphere. Right? The problem was that the game before, the day before, had gotten rained out. So our tickets became tickets to a doubleheader game. Right? And so our doubleheader game started at like noon that day. So we got to the ballpark at like noon, and guess what the first game happened to go into over extra innings? And so not only did we get to sit through the first game that got through over extra innings, then we got to start the second game. And guess what happened to the second game? I don't know, we left. Okay? Because we had sat in that ballpark, and we weren't in the nice luxury suites, we weren't in the nice like boxed-in area, we were in the sun 
from noon until whenever the sun went down. And we were so sunburnt and miserable, it has ruined baseball for me from then on. I've never been to a professional baseball game since then. But uh, there is one thing I really do appreciate about baseball. And it's simply this, that at least for now, I know there's talk about this change, I was reading about it, but at least for now, on the baseball field, there is one person in control of that game. There is one person who stands behind the plate and he makes a decision whether a ball is a whether the pitch is a ball or whether it is a strike. It is his call and his call alone. He decides it. You can't argue it. You may have a different opinion about it. In fact, everybody in that ballpark, if you've ever been to a Major League Baseball game, everybody in that ballpark has an opinion whether that pitch was a ball or a strike. And most of the time their opinions are different, right? The guy standing there who threw the ball, his opinion is that's a strike. The guy standing there at the bat, his opinion is that's a ball. All right? And the catcher, he's going to side with the, the pitcher. And this dugout's going to side with him. But can I tell you something? The beauty for me at the moment of baseball, at least this moment, is that none of their opinion matters. There's only one opinion that matters. And it's the man who stands behind the plate with the face mask. And he's the umpire. He makes the decision this or this. There's no in-between, there's no maybes, there's no let me think about it. There is this or this. And there is one standard, this is the standard, and I'm going to apply it to everybody the exact same way. Can I share with you? This world is full of voices and opinions. This world is full of voices and opinions that tell you you're right or you're wrong. But can I tell you the beauty of the peace of the Messiah is when it rules over you, there's only one opinion that matters. You see, that's the word that he uses. It's for a judge. It's for an arbiter. It's for somebody who is the umpire or the referee. The one who gets to call the shots. And it doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks. It doesn't matter if the majority says this. It doesn't matter if the majority says that. It matters what this one person says. And it doesn't matter if you're a donkey or you're an elephant. It doesn't matter if you were looking for a red wave or a blue wave or you wanted a green wave to come. None of that matters. What matters is what this one person says. This one standard of judgment. And listen what Paul says. Let that rule over you and be thankful. You're like, whoa, whoa, I don't want anybody ruling over me. I don't want any one person telling me what to do in the standards. But listen, can I tell you, it's much better to have one standard than try to meet all the other standards and all the other opinions that everybody else has. Because you will never find peace if you're chasing the opinions of everybody else. You will never find contentment and tranquility either with your Creator or with this world in this world if you're constantly chasing all the other standards and all the other attitudes when this party stands up and says this is right and then this party stands up and says this is right. If all you're concerned about is all those other people and what all those other people have to say, you're going to miss out on the peace of the Messiah because the peace of the Messiah is when He rules over us, when He is the only standard that we're concerned about. Listen, I'm going to tell you, you ought to be thankful that He has a peace that is, uh, He has peace that He can offer you, and this peace is enough for you. But we also ought to be thankful that His peace is the only thing that matters. You see, there are a lot of people 
that will tell you to get the salvation, to get the peace, that you have to do all of this different stuff, that, that you have to do this, you have to dress this way, you have to go on mission for this. And I want to tell you that none of that matters because none of that is a salvation by grace that God gives. None of that is a salvation that is offered to you freely. It's all the salvation of works and it never brings the peace of Christ because you will find yourself every single day waking up wondering if what you've done is enough. Be thankful that the peace of the Messiah says it doesn't matter that you're enough. It matters that He is enough. It doesn't matter that you worked hard enough, that you gave enough things, you attended church enough, that you gave enough. None of that matters. The peace of the Messiah is that what He did on the the cross is enough. And that is the one standard that makes the call of right and wrong. You see, when we let the peace of Christ rule over us, as Paul says, we understand there is one appropriate response to it. That when we respond to this peace, we do it with gratitude. Paul makes it clear in verse 16 that what we are doing here in this moment is not out of obligation. It's out of gratitude for what has already been done for us. Look with me in verse 16. He says, Let the the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart. You see, like in verse 15, there's a different word that he uses to convey this idea of giving thanks or being thankful. He, here the word is, is gratitude or have thanksgiving in your heart. And here the word is, is charis. And it means there's a grace that produces a joy. And so I want you to hold this idea. There is grace. There's this connection back to the grace, back to the peace of Christ that he offers. And, and this peace that he offers takes a step further that we don't just be mindful of it in verse 16 and verse 15 we be mindful of it but in verse 16 we respond to it this should there should be a response that we have when we understand the peace of the messiah and the response that we have it should be something that produces joy into us we should be thankful of his grace and his mercy and it should respond we should have this response that we produce that produces joy in our life and i want you to how do we find how do we express this joy we go back to the beginning of the verse. We respond with joy when we let the message of the Messiah dwell richly among us, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. When we study and we learn the Word of God, when we sit in this room, when we hear the Word of God, when we hear His message, when we do it in the back rooms, in the back, when we gather in small groups and we listen and we hear the Word of God, when we study His Word, we let His Word dwell among us. You see, we don't just hear it. It dwells in us. And this word dwells means to live in or to be at home in. You see, there's a difference. I have a dwelling that I live in. I am comfortable there. But when I come to your house, I'm just a visitor. I'm just a guest there. And you make the rules in your house, but in my house, I get to make the rules. And I am comfortable there. There's a sense of tranquility in my home that may not transpire into your home because I'm just a guest there. Now, the more I come to your home, the more comfortable I'm going to get, the more comfortable you're going to be having me there. But it doesn't happen when it's just one day a week. You see, what he tells us is that the word of Christ or the message of the Messiah, it has to dwell in us. George or Gregory Brown points out that the reason there's so little joy in our worship and in the hearts of so many Christians is because we as Christians treat the Word of God like a visitor rather than a resident. They visit the Word of God on occasion, but the Word of God is not living at home in them. 
It's not something they're living and abiding in all the time. You see, we're not in this constant state of being renewed and refreshed by His Word. And we'll show up on Sunday morning and, and we'll try to make it through the rest of the week and, and we'll try to get a whole week's worth of God's Word in this one hour. And some of you are like, yeah, good luck. When was the last time you preached for an hour, Michael? You're going to give it to us all. And, and I've heard some of you say... That when we leave here, man, you're, we're just so exhausted because you talk so fast and you, you, just, you just go on so in-depth and all this stuff. And I share with you, I do that on purpose because for some folks sitting in this room, and don't point fingers, but for some folks sitting in this room, i got to give you a whole week's worth of Jesus in this one hour because it's the only time you're going to be in His Word. That's not dwelling in His Word. You want to know why you're missing out on the joy of being a Christian? You want to know why other Christians look like they have it together and they, they have response of grace and joy? It's because they're dwelling in His Word. It's because they're reading His Word. They're, they're enveloped in His Word. You see, the more we are in His Word, the more we appreciate the grace of the cross of Jesus Christ. The more we understand how unworthy we are and how much of a sacrifice it took. And you're not going to get that for one hour a week on a Sunday morning. As much and as many words as I can give you, I can't fill your week up. I can't do it. You can come on a Wednesday, and you can dwell in the Word for an hour on Wednesday, but guess what? He's not talking about two hours of your week. He's talking about letting the Word dwell in you, become part of you, take up residence in you, not just an occasional visitor. You see, there's a problem. There, or excuse me, not only do we find this joy in His Word, we also find it in this other avenue that we have, and that's what we're doing here this morning. We respond in worship. The second part of the verse, Paul says that there should be singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. You see, what he's describing is what we've done here. He's describing worship here. And he's describing what we do when we gather here, that we sing praises to Him. We hear and we internalize His Word. And we notice that the songs that we sing have meaning to them and they're connected to each other. They're connected to the Word that we hear preached. Can I share something with you? More churches have broken up because of the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Can I tell you, the whole books have been written on the difference between those three things and how we should do this in worship and how we should do that in worship and how we should do this in worship. You should sing these types of songs and they should be this tempo and they should be with these instruments. Can I share something with you? If you're so focused on the songs and the hymns and the singing of spiritual songs, you completely forgot that all of it comes with the attitude of gratitude. That's his whole purpose. It's not to give you a hymn book. It's not to give you, hey, here's a list of songs that should be on your Spotify playlist. It is simply this is the attitude that you bring to regardless of what the songs are. Whether it's your favorite worship song or your least favorite, whether it's a brand new song you've never heard before this morning, you still approach it with gratitude. You see that same guy, George Brown, he points out this. He says that true worship does not exist because, because of a true love of God's Word does not exist. He said, go into churches all around the world and you will find dead worship. Worship is dead because the love of God's Word is dead. David, the writer of most of the Psalms, says in the very first chapter, if you're going to worship God, you must delight in His Word. It cannot be different from us. You see, the more we dwell 
in Him and He dwells in, the more, in us, the more we are filled with the understanding of the depths of His grace and His love for us, the more we find ourselves dwelling in His time of worship and we're, we're prone to respond with worship. And I want you to understand, this word that He chooses is not just standing and singing songs because they're on a screen. It's not just sitting here thinking, this is what I have to do on a Sunday morning and I'm going to check a box off and I'm going to do my Christian duty on a Sunday morning. You understand what he's telling you is to have gratitude in your heart because of the grace that you see, the peace of the Messiah and the message of the Messiah should respond to it. We should respond to it and we should respond with joy. There should be excitement about coming to church. There should be excitement about singing these songs, not because there's words on the screen, but because you understand that you don't deserve the depths of His grace, because you understand how much it took for you to be in His kingdom, because you understand maybe just for a moment how sinful and stained you were, and yet His blood washes you clean, and we should respond with joy to that, because you didn't deserve any of it. None of us do, and none of us ever will. When you sing your songs, we should sing it with gratitude in our heart, overflowing with joy because of what the Messiah has done for us, because there is a God who loved us enough to send His one and only Son to pay for every sin that we might have eternal life with Him this morning. Listen, we understand the depths of His grace. And our worship comes from the overflow of our heart. We realize that worship and giving thanks, it cannot be contained within these walls and within this hour that we spend together. You see, when we realize the depths of His grace, we can't help but to give thanks and live thanks beyond these walls because it overflows in every aspect of our life. There was a time in my life that I was bivocational. Now, let me clarify what that means. That means I had two jobs, okay? I had a, a secular job, and I had a ministry job. Right? I was teaching high school full-time and coaching, and that was my secular job. That wasn't a religious activity. Right? And so for that, I still do, and I'll be honest, transparent, I haven't updated either one of them. But at one point, I had two different resumes. I had a secular resume that, would use, that I would use for secular jobs. Right? These were jobs for teaching. These were jobs for coaching. And, and so I wrote that resume to highlight different things that I had done, different experiences I had, different internships I had, different academic awards I had, to show that I valued education and I would be useful in educational facility. Right? And so awards and, and uh, comments and uh, internships and, and um, times when I student taught or times when I... Um, uh, t- uh, was my te- professor's teaching assistant or lapses. Those things look good when you're trying to get a teaching job. So I had this resume that was my secular resume. And I kept it separate from my ministry resume. My ministry resume, it had some of that stuff on it, but that wasn't the highlight of it. You see, my ministry resume was all about what I've done in ministry. So I, I highlighted some mission trips that I've been on and places that I lived and done missions and, and mission trips that I'd led and, and camps that I had worked at with teenagers and, and those things that would make me look good in a ministry setting. Right? And so I had these two different resumes and I had these two different papers that I would send to whoever it was I was, uh, was applying for a job for and I kept them completely separate. Yeah, they had a little bit of overlap, But as I begin to look and get a little older, I begin to understand that maybe that little bit of overlap should have been a whole lot greater of an overlap. Because we tend to separate those two things out. We tend to separate the secular part of our lives 
from the holy part of our lives. We, temper, we tend to separate the, this is my normal life, and this is my church life. This is my normal group of friends, and this is my church group of friends. This is my Monday through Friday job, and this is what I do on Sundays. And as we read in verse 17, we find out that there really should not be and cannot be those two distinct areas of our life. That maybe those two areas should overlap, not just part of the time, but all the time. Look with me in verse 17. He says, and we'll finish with this verse, Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, in verse 17, he expands this idea of worship and thanksgiving beyond these walls. He expands it beyond this weekly time that we set apart. He expands it beyond this coming together and this worshiping together that we do once a week. And he says, in whatever you do, and he says that this means, this word whatever, it really does mean that. It means to make or to construct or produce or to reap. And literally, it's this all-inclusive word for work. And so whatever type of work you do, Whatever your job is, do it in the name of the Lord. Whether you sit in an office Monday through Friday, whether you're digging ditches Monday through Friday, whether you're sitting in a classroom Monday through Friday, whether you're watching the neighbor's kids Monday through Friday, whether you're watching your own kids and raising your own kids, do it all in the name of the Lord. You see, it's not just church staff positions. It's not just ministry positions. It is every job that we've ever had. Do it in the name of the Lord. We should work as if we're working for Him because the reality is we are you see, our jobs and what we have and what we're doing going to school, it, we should do it by giving thanks to the God, the Father, through Him. And here, Paul, again, he uses this different word for thanksgiving. And he uses this word, and this word's a little different, because unlike the first word, this word's used all over the New Testament. This is a very common word that he uses here. In fact, the two most popular times it's used is when Jesus is uh, getting ready to feed a mass group of people, and there are loaves and fish, and that's all they have. And Jesus takes them. He tells everybody to sit down. He takes the loaves and the fish, and what does He do with it? He gives thanks. That's the word. Right? Let me take you another time. And I say it's most probable because it occurs in all the gospel. Jesus is preparing for the end of His life. He knows His time is short. And he gathers his disciples for one last Passover celebration. And they're sitting at the table. Him and the twelve disciples are sitting at this table together. And he knows his time is short. He knows that within hours he's going to be arrested. And he's going to be beaten. He's going to be hung on a cross. He knows all of that. And yet he sits at this table with these men. And they have dinner together. And he takes bread. And what does the scripture say? He took the bread. He broke it. And he gave thanks. That's this word. That's the word that's used here in Colossians 3 verse 17. To give thanks. And so understand that this idea of giving thanks is this pre-meal blessing. That is this recognition from the provision of God. And so what Christ is doing when he gives thanks before the loaves and the fish before he divides them. He thanks God for the loaves and the fish because God is the one who provided them to do this great thing. Before He, he prepares the meal, before He uh, gives out the meal and breaks the bread, He gives thanks to the body that's going to be broken and to the blood that's going to be spilled out even though it's His own. He gives 
thanks for because God is the one who provided those things. And He's the provider of our way of salvation. He sees God, the Heavenly Father, as the provider. And so we connect this back to whatever you do, whatever job you have, realize that you need to give things to it. You need to approach it with the same attitude that Christ has, that He is the provider of all that we need. In fact, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10 and 11, Paul uh, kind of clarifies this idea that, yeah, what I've got is mine. I worked for it. It was my job and my, pie, my paycheck. But Paul clears this up in, in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10. He says in verse 10, Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way and all. For all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. So you can argue all day long that it's your job and it's your paycheck and it's your body. But the reality is that none of that is yours. It is all a gift of the one who has given it to us. The seed all the way to the bread. The, the, the increase and everything in between. It is all His. And the gifts that He has given us, we ought to be thankful for the gifts that we have and the strength that we have and the abilities that we have. So I want to put this in the context of where we're at. That we should approach everything we do, not just Sunday mornings, not just Bible study on Sunday mornings or Wednesday night, everything we do in word and in deed, approach it with the same prayerful and thankful attitude that Jesus approached the bread and the cup with. And when we do that, it will really start to change the way that you look at tomorrow morning and the job that's coming. So before the Sunday blues set in, let me connect all this back together, maybe a different way of looking at tomorrow morning or Monday morning. You see, whatever job you will go to, whatever it is, be thankful. Do it with gratitude in your heart. Have a moment of prayer and blessing before. So here, you want to change your Sunday dread? You want to change the dread of tomorrow morning? Then tonight, before you go to bed... Thank God for the job that you get to do tomorrow morning. On your way into the job that you are dreading because the stack of papers that are on your desk is overflowing and all the stuff that got piled up on the weekend and all the stuff that was there Friday is still there Monday. On your way into that job, thank God that there's a job that you get to walk into. And when you're sitting at your desk or you're sitting wherever you're at or you're out doing whatever your job is and it's painful and it's difficult and that same coworker comes in your single ear every single day and reminds you how terrible and miserable this job is, thank God. Give thanks in this moment of prayer and do what Christ does. Give thanks for it all. Regardless, pray in those moments. And when you start to pray and thank God for those moments, you'll find out that it's not just a job and it's not just a paycheck. You're in a job, whatever that job is, you're there as a missionary. This is your mission field. This is the place where you make the name of Jesus known. This is the place that not only you can worship, but you can let the Word dwell in you and so that others can join you in worship as well and join you in the joy that you have. See, it's a place... Where you not only let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, but where you let it demonstrate that peace of Christ to those that are around you each and every moment of your day. I'll share one last story with you. When I was in college, I worked in a nursing home. And it helped me pay for college. It was one of the ways that I could, could help pay for my education. And, and there was a lady that I worked with. And she came up to me after I worked there for several months. And she said, I, just, I don't get you. Which is... 
That's fine. A lot of people don't get me. I'm, I'm okay with that, right? And I said, well, that's, that's all right. A lot of people don't get me, but is there something specific you don't get about me? And she said, every day you walk in here with this smile on your face. And I know the job you do because I do it too. And it's not the most best job in the world and, and the pay is not that great. And we do some terrible, miserable things. And yet you walk around here with this smile on your face. And then you walk out of here with this smile on your face. Is there never a time that you're not smiling? I said, oh yeah, there's lots of times I'm not smiling. She said, but I just don't get it. Like, why do you smile coming into this place where, where we know that within months, most of the people we're working with aren't going to be here anymore? Why do you smile every single day when you come and you know the task that you're going to put your hands in is not the greatest and nobody else is signing up for? Why do you smile when our life, this, this job that we have, is terrible? And I just looked at her. And I said, you know why I smile every single day? Because I walk in this place every single day. And I get to sit and work and, and, and do life for just a few moments with all of these people who would love to walk into this place every single day. And I punch my card and I walk out and I go home. And I smile, unfortunately, because I leave all of these people here that would love to get to go home. And they can't. And you know what? I get to come back the next day. And I smile because the same people would love to do the job that I am doing. You see, this isn't just a job for me. This is a chance to show the love of Christ to people that everybody else has written off. You see, maybe tomorrow, instead of going into your job and dreading your situation and going to job and dreading the, the teachers or the, the co-workers, Maybe you pray and you see Him as a mission field. Maybe you see it as a moment to give thanks to Him and to respond with joy to the grace that He's given you. And maybe, just maybe, if we begin to view Monday that way, then somebody will walk up to you and say, I just don't get you. You smile when nobody else does. And you can share with them there's a piece of a Messiah and a message about a Messiah that I want to share with you one day. Let's pray together. Father.